happens when you put joy, superheroes, and a love of all things good and holy together? You get the Guardians of Virtue podcast, designed for saints who want to fight for the most precious of all gifts of our time, virtue. Join your host, Elisa Lindsay Johnson, that's me, as I discover everyday heroes who all have one thing in common, a desire to fight as Guardians of Virtue for God, freedom, and our families. Let's discover together what it really means to be a guardian of virtue. I'm excited to introduce this week's guardian of virtue. Shane has been a friend and musical mentor for several years now. I really appreciate his musical skill. The way he takes care of every note that he puts on a page as he composes shows me that he really does guard the virtue of music. I'm excited for you to get to know my friend Shane. Shane Mickelson is a composer, conductor, holding a Bachelor's of Music degree in vocal performance from Utah State University and a Master's of Music in Music Composition from the University of Utah. His music can be streamed on all platforms and has been performed in Europe, Asia, the Utah State Capitol, and the White House. Shane primarily works to arrange and produce orchestral music for classical and classical crossover artists. He has written for and with artists such as The Piano Guys, Paul Cardall, 92 Keys, and The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Lamb of God is his favorite work to conduct. Shane loves the process of auditioning and coaching soloists, rehearsing and refining the choir and orchestra and seeing the work touch people's lives. All right, without further ado, let's meet Shane Mickelson. All right, Shane, thank you for joining me on today's episode. Thanks for having me. Um, I have been really excited to talk to you about this. This is something that Music is something we've been talking about with each other for several years now, and um, and so it's fun to to do to talk about it in this sense. So um, to give a little background, I've known Shane for a while. Last year was the first time we met in person, but he has helped me with uh, musical things for I don't know how many years now, and his knowledge surpasses most everyone that I know when it comes to music. And he um, does what he does beautifully. And so I can't wait for you guys to meet him. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So for our first question, what do you think it means to be a guardian of music? Well, I think that music in general is a very, well, at least to me, it's a very sacred thing. And it's a very personal thing. And music can be used for um, for good and for bad. It can be used for, for leisure. It can be used for um, a purpose. But um, for me, it's just a very, it's a very sacred thing. And it's something that I personally take um, seriously. And I take it to be like actually like part of myself, like it's hard for me to draw a line between where music starts and I begin, but it's something that I just very much identify with. So thinking of it that way, um, my, my job with music 
um, as a guardian of music, so to speak, would be to use it in a way that um, promotes spiritual connection or to use it in a way that anchors us with ourselves and anchors ourselves with deity or spiritual things. I think that's a great definition. Uh, this one was, I was curious to what you would, as to what you would say, because I've never interviewed somebody on here who uh, had this virtue. I mean, I'm sure I've interviewed people who are musical, but we've never talked about this on here. And uh, I don't know if people would consider music as a virtue, but it totally is. And we can totally be a guardian of it by how we consume it, how we use it. and um, so the way you consume music, well, one of the ways is by composing it. Yes. And you started composing when, well, you probably started composing before you were 17, but you were uh, asked to compose an opera for Utah State University when you were 17 called The Wolf and the Seven Kids. Yes. Uh, so what was that opera about? So I had always dreamed about, um, I mean, I have music has been in my soul since as long as I can remember. And to take a little step back from there, actually, I remember when I was a kid, maybe 10 or 11, and we went to um, the Broadway tour of Les Mis that was doing its traveling tour. And we went inside in Salt Lake City. And the whole time that I was like 10 or 11, that I was watching this musical, I was just thinking the thoughts were just like crushing me. And I, the thoughts were somebody had to write this. Who could that have been? Or somebody had the spiritual responsibility of writing something that would touch millions and millions and millions of people. Mm -hmm. And wow, how is that even possible? Wow. What a great pressure that is for that person's like spiritual responsibility to have created this art. And as I watched the musical, which is more than two and a half hours long, and the feeling just weighed on me more and more and more throughout the whole production. And the only way I could make that feeling go away was by telling myself when I walked out, well, I'm glad that's not my job. <laughs> because how on earth could anyone be responsible for that kind of that kind of uplifting spiritual music? And but saying that only made the feeling go away for a few days. And so ever since then, I have been very focused and fixated on that task. Well, how do I how do I become someone who could create music like that? How can I become a creator of something that can help people feel spiritual things? And every single day of my life since then, I have been working to put myself in a position where I can be used that way or work in ways that, that, that do work that way. And so I had been working for several years at that point, trying to develop my skills in such a way. And I just needed, I mean, I just needed something to write. So I was just writing hungry as I think I put it one time. And when the 2008 um, crash hit, um, so did the budget for Utah State's opera production to do to get licensing for an opera to do outreach at all the the elementary schools around the university. So I said, well, I can write an opera for you. And if I write it, then 
we can take that opera to all the elementary schools around for the opera outreach program. And they're like, okay, good idea. So I wrote it in 20, no, 2009. Mm-hmm. And then um, my mom helped me pick the story, The Wolf and the Seven Kids. It's a, it's a fairy tale about a mom, a, mo- a mother goat with seven kids that at breakfast time, they realize that they don't have any bread. So the mom leaves to go buy bread, but warns them that the wolf is going to come and um, try to eat them. So don't let him in. And the story kind of unfurls like that, like one of those fairy tales. I won't spoil the ending, but so I wrote it for orchestra and opera. And then we also took it around to all the, like maybe 10 elementary schools for opera outreach that year in 2010. So how long did it take for you to compose that opera? Um, I started out in January of 2009. One, that's when I, they told me that I could write one. And um, I started out with a different story. I started out with the, the three Billy Goats gruff. Mm-hmm. But being at this point in 2009, I'm, I'm, let's see, I'm still 17 years old in January. And I am just thinking to myself, wow, this is a big undertaking. I haven't done something like this before. So I kind of proceeded in a way that wasn't really going to end up successful. And that was, I was going to write all the music first. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd find places to put in the words that when it was all done. And that was obviously going to result in a failure, which also um, resulted in a learning experience. Um, but I was working on it until finally it's like May and I have to have the opera done by August in order for the school to um, rehearse it in the fall, perform it in January with the orchestra and then take it to the schools in the spring of 2010. So it's May and I'm like, man, this is going nowhere. This is going to be really, really bad. So I go upstairs and I, um, so school had semester had ended. So I'm back in Salt Lake, um, at home. And I tell my mom, I said, mom, I think this is just going to be an epic failure. And she's like, well, what if you changed your story? And she told me the story of the wolf and the seven kids. And I'm like, well, that seems like the structure would definitely work a lot better. Like, I don't know how I'm going to elongate this Billy Goat's gruff opera to be that more than five minutes long (laughs) so um she's like why don't we go to the park let's write down every song every dialogue's lyric and let's do that together and so we did that for like two days and after two days the whole structure and all the lyrics and all the dialogue was basically all written out and i said okay i think i can work with this so i drove to logan which was two hours away where the university is. And I locked myself in one of the university practice rooms for like two days, maybe three, like 10 hour days. And I wrote the opera basically in three days. Holy cow. It's a 36 minute opera. It's got about like maybe 12 songs, 10 scenes. And I attribute that speed because I had my roadmap. And this is also a spiritual uh, metaphor too, is that, if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter which way you go. But yeah. if you have your roadmap, which in this case, we call it a book or we call it a libretto. Libretto would be the term for just the text and lyrics for an opera. And so I had my libretto. Um, because I had that, I knew where I was going. And because I knew where I was going, I could build the music to follow that path. Um, and one more thing, what was I? Um, and so I was able to like even adapt it from there. But and even adapt some of the lyrics and some of the scenes even further. But 
that was only possible because I had my structure. Uh, so is it safe to assume then you usually does it? I mean, can you do you finish your projects in three days? No. Like usually you take longer than that, right? I take but, a long time to do projects in general. And I think that's because you you there's a little bit of perfectionist in you from what I've seen. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Everything has to sound right, feel right, be right and be written right. If like, if there's something wrong, it's like, I'm not going to cover something up with drywall and say, okay, it's good. Whatever's behind the drywall has to be perfect too, for me. So how do you know it's perfect? Well, that is a very interesting question. I don't think you can ever know, but one guideline that I like to live by is that I ask myself questions about every note. And I say, if I took this note out, would I notice it? Would it help it or would it hurt it? Mm -hmm. And usually I can answer that question about every single note. If there's notes that I'm like saying, oh, it's fine, but I'm not asking myself those questions about it, then those notes are kind of like, I don't know, maybe I'm burying an unused wire behind the drywall. And it's like, if it's not necessary, I don't want it there. So mm -hmm. in a sense, every note is going to be serving some kind of purpose or it's going to be helping or it's going to be hurting. If it's hurting, I take it out. If it's doing nothing, I need to take it out. Or I need to figure out what it's doing. And that's just one little test that I like to do for me to really be happy with. How do you know if it's helping? Well, there's lots of ways that it can help. Like, for example, it could be like, if I take this note out, then I'm missing support. Or if I take this note out, then I'm not harmonizing this note. But then it leads me into another question. Of, well, does that note need? Um, so a lot of it is by feel. I mean, almost all of it is by feel, but certainly um, it's a, it's kind of a marriage between how it feels and other, other technicalities, but there's a saying, and I agree with it 98% that is, if it sounds right, it is right. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'll agree with that 98%. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree too. And I totally get the perfectionism thing. Now, Shane is a composer. I and a pianist and um but the perfectionism is absolutely something us pianists struggle with <laughs> and i could be working on a piece well personally right now i have been working on a couple pieces for more than two months and still don't feel like i'm ready to be done with them yet <laughs> and I like so this. go ahead go ahead you're fine i like to say that um, composers and performers both have the same job, which is to get all the notes right. The difference is the um, the performer has to get it right right then in the performance, and the composer can take as long as it takes two notes right. So it's better to be a composer then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. A lot of it. I mean, no, you're fine. Um, a lot of it. Uh, going back to that idea about how do you know when it's right. Um, I'm talking to my composition students a lot about taste these days yeah. because taste is really a personal thing, but it's also a very dynamic thing that develops and grows. And in the end, if the composer is absolutely happy with something, then I think that they should say that it's done. But um, the funny thing is that as then a composer's taste may change or grow 10 years from now, that composer might say, oh, this really wasn't done. But it was done for them at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think taste plays a lot, plays, plays a big role, 
just because it can always change and that puts us on our toes i guess i guess as a performer too your taste can change about what you like about how you're performing something yeah i was gonna say because i've played pieces that generally i like but sometimes i want to play slightly different than what is written do composers take offense to that i'm just curious because i've had yes plenty and no. of instances i, I think yes and no i think okay. that there are <clears throat> one thing that i try to really lean into as a composer is that um the relationship between composer and performer is a collaborative relation mm-hmm. just like the um the playwright and the actors and so shakespeare's writing to be or not to be but then the person who gets up to play Hamlet gets up there and says to be or not to be. And it's like, well, that wasn't very expressive. Yeah. And, and did Shakespeare have to go in and write like, move your arms like this yeah. <laughs> inflection on this note, on this note right here. And the composer can't say all those things. Right. And even if they did, you're asking, I mean, a performer, a composer can never micromanage a performer. So mm-hmm. it becomes really a collaboration which is that the composer's music doesn't exist without the performer and because of that it's not like an employee employer relationship it's a partner relationship and in the classical music world there's this huge push for like it's called performance practice which is like we are going to um, at all costs perform Bach's music the way Bach would have heard it in his day yeah and while there is actual immense value to doing that there's a problem if you then go far so far as to say and every other way is wrong yeah but it's not because we for all we know bach could be like listen to a modern interpretation of his song of his piece i should say um where more pedal is used on the piano or Mm -hmm. more vibrato is used on the violin and be like wow i actually hadn't thought of it that way And as a composer nowadays, because we can't micromanage a performer, there are so many things that they bring to our music that we can't write down. And that is something to lean into and to appreciate. Um, Now, obviously, if something happens that is really contrary to the composer's taste, you will definitely offend the composer and the composer has no no recourse other than to just complain on Facebook or Instagram, (laughs) (laughs) which they would be silly to do. but yeah you said that the composer wouldn't exist without the performer but i feel like it's also vice versa i wouldn't exist i wouldn't be the pianist that i am without the composers because i don't you've seen you've seen the things that i've tried to compose they're very amateur and very uh limited because that's a talent that i will have to work out really hard if it's something that i want to do whereas there are people like you who generally I mean you started composing when you were really young right and so it's just something that comes more naturally to you and so I'm grateful for composers because I wouldn't be a pianist without them and and I love that you said it's a collaborative collaborative effort between us and I appreciate most the music that is composed when music that is composed has um has enough notations so that I can kind of get the feel of the song, but that I can also add my own interpretation to it. Yeah. And that's where the beauty comes, I think. Exactly. And it's also like, like the conductor versus the orchestra is like the conductor 
isn't the one making the noise. The composer is not the one making the noise. It's like the musicians are. And so there's just exactly as you said, it's collaborative effort and a partnership, not a not a hierarchy. Speaking of orchestra, you are preparing for the Lamb of God performances at the end of this month, right? Yeah, we open on Friday night. Oh, wow. That's so exciting. And how many years, I know you did it last year, but how many years have you been doing this every Easter? So I am with an organization called Witness Music Utah, Mm -hmm. and they are in their 12th season of, of, they've been in for 12, they've been doing Lamb of God for 12 years. Um, The 2020 season was canceled um, the week before the performances and the 20 and the 2021 season was never um, didn't actually do. So of mm-hmm. the 12 years that we've been around, we've done 10 seasons. Okay. <clears throat> I have been with them since 2017 kind of by accident. Um, I was their rehearsal pianist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next year I was their assistant for director for two years. And then at the end of the 2019 season, they made me their director. Mm-hmm. So this is um, my third um, season conducting them, um, but maybe more like fourth year with them as their director. Okay, so uh, directing an entire orchestra and singers to me sounds very overwhelming. You've showed me the whole full score. It's massive. It. I don't know if anyone on here has seen what a full orchestral score looks like, but it's like like two and a half feet long, <laughs> the page itself it, or something. I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, but it's massive. And um, Shane and anyone that's a conductor has to look at this and turn the pages and see everything that's going on and tell tell people what to do and when to come in. And I've tried conducting a choir at church and that is very intimidating to me. So what kind of work, because I imagine that's not something somebody can just start doing. I, I would imagine that it takes work to prepare to get up to that point where you can sit and read an, a score and be able to tell everyone what to do. And so what kind of work goes into doing that as you're leading up to a performance? Well, I was just counting and it looks like that at any um, that when all the instruments of the orchestra are playing that um, including the four choir parts that you could have 31 parts happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this score is printed on 11 by 17 paper. Yeah. And um, we, I can see 31 lines of music that all happen at the same time. Um, there's this thing that conductors do that's called score prep and score prep is um, basically a study session done with colored pencils or crayons or sticky notes or pencils or a hybrid of all of them. And every conductor has their own system for it. For example, um, I have a yellow um, colored pencil that marks any place where my immediate conscious attention needs to be at any one time. Mm-hmm. So it may be that, okay, the choir requires my conscious attention at this time. So that part is marked in yellow, but then at the same time, there are lots of other things happening. Like 
this person's going to need a cue. So that's, I guess, why I have two hands. So, or oftentimes it'll happen like where my eyes are going to give the cues. So if my right hand is dedicated to the choir, then my left hand can be dedicated to, all right, this person needs an entrance. This person needs a cutoff. This person needs to be encouraged on their dynamics. Oh, it looks like our rhythm section isn't pulling their weight in the tempo. So then my eyes will go to them and the, the eyebrows will go up just a little bit and the eye contact will be there. And then that synchronism will happen again. Um, but all sorts of things. So I'll mark things like entrances, cutoffs, where my conscious attention needs to be. And that changes. It can change from measure to measure where your conscious attention needs to be. And then I'll color the crescendos red, the diminuendos blue, um, the, the forte and mezzo fortes red, and the piano and mezzo pianos blue, just so that any at any given moment, because um, my attention is here on the orchestra, I can look down at my score and I can see, oh, in two bars, I forget my temp, my my volume needs to come down because I saw the blue. Or mm-hmm. um, in two bars, my attention needs to be on viola. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember. So it's definitely, it requires a lot of preparation and it requires a lot of experience. And you don't, I mean, you learn from instruction, but you also learn from hitting icebergs and <clears throat> you learn from previous orchestras that you've conducted where you really let the orchestra down (laughs) and you learn like, okay, so when I do this, that's a recipe for letting them down or Mm -hmm. um, you do this and that's a recipe for um, encouraging them to succeed. And it's honestly, it's my favorite thing to do. I compose Mm -hmm. because in the, at the end of the day, I want that music to exist, not because the process of composing is pleasant it's kind of unpleasant sometimes mm-hmm. oftentimes um but i do it for the result but with conducting i love every part of the process it's physical it's social and it has me doing what i do best which is teach teach mm-hmm. is my is probably the highest thing on my list of things that i love and so all those combine but con- composing even though i love the result the process is is strenuous <laughs> I would agree. I now I've never again, I've never conducted an orchestra, but I would agree the, my favorite thing about being a pianist is performing with other people because there there's a specific magic that comes from working together to achieve something that blesses other people. And you don't quite get that. I've never I don't experience that. The best way I experience that is in musical performance. There are other ways to experience it, but there's just something there's a there's a magic in the spirit that comes from musical performance that doesn't come any other way. I have a saying that I tell my students, and that is, if you're making music alone, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And that's coming from like when the com- the composition process is a lonely process, but I'm a very social person and mm-hmm. I really thrive on social human interaction in order to fill my bucket and composition doesn't have that so i remind them i'm like and that's another reason why we need um performers because i mean one of the hard things about being a composer in this day and age is that um how can you be a composer if no one will perform it i mean it's really hard to to get the resources together in order to have people perform your music so what most um 
composers or people who are composers by profession, what they're doing is they're creating all of their sounds inside of their computer. And they actually have um, software that can make the music in the computer sound like a real orchestra. Like you can trick people mm-hmm. and actually make it convincing. And that's really what they have to do because it the resources for live performances, it's so hard to get those resources. Mm-hmm. But when you do it that way, that makes it even more lonely. Yeah. So I told myself, like back in 2017 or 2016, that I was going to prioritize, like I was only going to do composition work for clients who would have the budget for actual orchestra recordings. And I just said, anything other, any other work, I'm just not going to take that work because I am going to set myself a boundary and a standard, which is that I am lonely enough working in this room. I'm going to make sure that every single composition project that I'm doing gets me human interaction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's that's the best part about music. And I think that sometimes it takes musicians, well, maybe just it's a pianist problem because I don't know, I could be wrong, but for me it took a long time to to realize that it was okay to share that talent and um in the sense that like I had plenty of opportunities since I was a child to to perform at church or whatever. Mm-hmm. but um but to for perform outside of that for the sake of performing because that would bring happiness to other people you know I, I don't know how to best voice that like I've been doing my I, d- I do been doing my Christmas concerts and which mm-hmm. is so small compared to something like an orchestra concert but I've been doing that for five years now and and that's something that took me a long time to even come up with the idea and like the courage to do that and it amazes me every single time I do it because people will tell me they wish they could sit there and just listen to me play all the time and to me I don't necessarily understand because I'm just the pianist like is it really that amazing but there is a special feeling that comes with music listening or playing absolutely I even like I try to do recitals often with um, my students just because I love seeing them all together. And I also do a sneaky thing is that I assign my piano students duets so that I Mm. have to play with them (laughs) (laughs) because like, because that is, I mean, that's just some, a treat for me. Like I, all right, you're, you're an excellent pianist. I want to play with an excellent pianist. I'm going to assign you a duet. We're going to, and I'm going to benefit from this. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So why do you think Heavenly Father gave you the gift of musical talent? We've all been given gifts. Why do you think he gave you specifically the talent of music? Oh, I have no idea. But I do, if I'm honest, I can say that I do feel, just like I was telling you when I was watching Les Mis on stage as a 10-year-old, that I feel a great sort of pressure. I don't know if I want to call it a responsibility, but I do feel... Like every step that I take, I am trying to contribute something that will be of value to somebody musically and spiritually. And that's all I can say about for how I feel. I don't know how much of it is true, but that's how I feel. (laughs) Yeah. And from my end, I think he gave it to you because he knew that you would take it seriously and that you would that you would truly guard it because that's what you do. 
everything you've described up until this point in our conversation shows me that you guard you guard your responsibility of music very seriously in a good way and you 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 take care of it you nurture music you you do all those things and you love it and to me that's probably why he knew that you would take care of of something so special that's very kind i must say that i do also feel that um sharing that and teaching it like i said before of all the things that i am i think the best thing that i am is a teacher and i i mean I, I didn't mention this yet, but the reason why, one of the reasons why I have the gifts that I have is because I had my mother to nurture those. My mother mm-hmm. was a genius in music and she was a, she was a piano performance and choral education major at Utah State University, mm-hmm. like 20 years before I went there, <clears throat> exactly 20 years because I went there when I was young. But, um, um, I have always thought to myself, I am so lucky that I had her because um, if I didn't have her, I might either, I mean, maybe I would have done what I'm doing, but maybe I would have done something else and found music later. Maybe it would have still been a part of me, but I wouldn't have had the chance to develop the skill that she was able to, because she was like my 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 lexicon i could just be like mom what's happening here why does this sound good she could tell me why and then she'd be like well do you know about this i'm like well what is that and then she'd pull this recording out and she's like well it happens here here and here can you hear it so she would train me as a young kid for all that stuff and i like to tell myself that maybe there are people out there who have it in them just like i have it in me but who don't have a mom like i have yeah and i am on a mission to find those people and the students that I'm teaching now and be that resource for them that to help them achieve the heights that maybe if they didn't have the expertise in their house, at least maybe I can help them achieve their goals. Yeah, I think, and I agree with you as far as being a piano teacher, a music teacher is concerned. Uh, it's admit, and it's, immense, it's an immense responsibility and pleasure to be able to bring the joy of music and to, to children that may or may not be able to experience that at home. I, yeah, it's one of those things that if you get me talking about it, I just won't stop because the, the passion for the learning and the passion for the teaching is just really high. <laughs> well, you know, that's kind of the point of this podcast is for you to talk about it. So, <laughs> so it's good. okay if you don't stop. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about teaching? Um, when I feel like there's this language um, that music is the way we talk about music, but also music itself in a way that's not like uh, you don't translate it into English. But when a student starts out, especially like if it's a voice student, then the language that we speak is very different from each other because um, we have to use new words to talk about um, concepts that we can't really see inside of our anatomy, our vocal anatomy. We can't see it. We often can't feel it. And then the way we describe sound, it's like, how do we describe sound? It's a, it's a whole new language. So eventually coming to a place where we speak the same language and it takes years sometimes where we feel like, wow, now we understand each other and we have a language and we understand things that no one else understands. 
And it doesn't mean because it's not understandable. It's because that's now a personal relationship because my language that I use with that student is not the same language I use with another mm-hmm. because, because that person understood it in a different way. So the way we talk about sound is different with a student than another. So it's a very personal thing. And the same thing when we talk about music composition and we start to understand, oh, I understand what the music is telling me, even though it doesn't have words. Like I understand the sound, not just the words. And when you can get the student and then you now speak the same language there, there's this camaraderie where you feel like, wow. And we share this, no one else, like no one else could share this. And eventually as they, as you incorporate into a larger community um, of like-minded musicians, then you can, you can share that language and you can enhance that language, but having that language and that connection with um, students and other musicians I think is a very rewarding experience. Yeah. And it's fun to get to the point where you kind of see the transition start. One of my favorite lessons um, to do with my students when they're having a hard time with dynamics is sitting down and we switch spots. So they sit in my chair and and I sit at the piano and I, I play it the way they play it, which is usually either very forte, very, very loud or or just very even kill nothing. And then I play it with the dynamics that are marked and I'm like, okay, which one sounded better? Which one sounded the way that the title indicates that it's going to sound, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it's a sad song or a happy song or whatever, like which one made more sense? And so they're like, oh, the one that you did, right? The one that has the dynamics and the piano and Uh you know, the soft and all that stuff. and. And so it's fun to start seeing them take that. And I, I, it's almost like you have to spell it out sometimes so that they can see the difference. That's why I like doing that lesson because mm-hmm. um, they can immediately hear what's different. Because I can sit and tell them all day, no, can you play that? Touch the key a little softer so you can mm-hmm. play piano. And when I say play piano for people that are listening, that's a definition. It's a musical term that means you play soft or quiet. I like to say soft because that means you touch the keys softer. You press on them softer, which makes the sound softer. But anyways, it's fun to see them finally make that transition. And that's when music isn't just notes. It becomes actual music where healing is felt and where they get to really make their own music. Absolutely. And dynamics, I think, are one of the biggest differences between when something sounds good and when it sounds wow it's really in those those we call them small things because they seem simple to us but real mindfulness to those details are really the key in my opinion to making things really really yeah when you have music and you play it without dynamics it's like you're in a world without color and then you add dynamics and all of a sudden it becomes this beautiful, colorful place. That's why it's so important. Absolutely. Um, so one of my biggest pet peeves as a, as a piano teacher is when somebody, an adult usually, tells me, oh, I wish I wouldn't have quit piano when I was a kid, it's too late, or I'm too old to learn piano. What is, as a teacher, what, it, what is something that you would tell that person because usually i say it's 
you're never too old to learn something new and learning piano will be a great blessing to you <laughs> and you know usually they just shake it off and and it's probably an excuse that they say so they don't because they don't really want to put the work in but what is yeah. something you would tell them what i usually respond to that is um ye, our lives are full of choices and sometimes we make a choice that takes us away from one from another option and sometimes one choice eliminates other options and if you chose not to do piano that means that you chose to do something else mm -hmm. and i hope that that thing is bringing you joy and if at any point you ever wanted to make the time for it then you could have a very fulfilling experience if you're willing to put the time into it. and time is usually the thing that people trade um, yeah. I want my time, so I'm not going to practice. Well, I tell myself that I'm going to get my time <laughs> by practicing because yeah. that is what's going to take me to the place that I want to go, which is, again, bringing us back to the Chestershire cat, which is that if you know where you want to go, then you know which route to take. And if you don't care where you're going, then it doesn't really matter which route you take. Mm -hmm. But I like, to, I like to think about it that in like form of choices, like, oh, I didn't do this in my life. Well, let's just put the first ground rule, which is that you can't do everything. Okay. Yeah. You can't be president of the people's Republic of China and an astronaut and um, <laughs> the president of Brazil. You just can't do all those things. You got to pick one. And so I hope that what you're devoting your time to is bringing you joy because it doesn't have to be piano, but yeah. if you want it to be, I hope that will be fulfilling for you and I'll help you if you want. <laughs> and right. that's, that's how I like, that's how I like to frame it. That's a good way to frame it. And that's true. Like not everyone has to play the piano. Not everyone has to be musical, but. But the certainly they're it. not too old. Certainly no. they're not too old. Like, no. like in all honesty, does some of your motor skill decline with age? Yes. Does some of your brain, pla brain plasticity decline with age? Yes. So, I mean, you'd be really hard pressed to find someone who becomes a professional violinist who picked it up in their twenties. Yeah. Like you're, 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 you either needed to be a one digit age or in, you're it needed to start with a one. But if you're, mm -hmm. if you started with a two in your age, then, then chances are statistically that you really can't become a professional violinist. And sometimes that's just our own biology working against us. But that doesn't mean that it can't be a fulfilling experience learning. Right. I didn't start taking violin lessons until my age started with a three. <laughs> <laughs> and is that ever going to be like me doing the solo you know maybe i'll do the solo someday but it won't be like it certainly won't sound like a professional mm -hmm. um if i want to sound like a professional then i'll write some music play or or sing something but at this point i do violin because it helps me write for the violin it helps make me a better composer mm -hmm. and that's fulfilling for me but I also have my expectations expectations in check that I'm not doing this to become a professional at it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, what are you going to trade your time for? Right. Like if you wanted to become a professional, you probably could, but you would literally have to do nothing else. <laughs> yep. I would have to um, go find my my family, a new husband and dad, and I'd have to go to the practice room and and just live off of granola bars for the next 30 years. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I probably could never be a professional pianist because I don't want to devote eight hours, five, eight hours of my day to practicing. I can't, nope. not with my children. <laughs> whatever, whatever serves you, 
whatever yeah. serves you. But I can use it to bless other people in the exactly. limited and, time that I have. And your family and yourself. Yep. Yep. I love it. So being a musician, you have to quickly come to the knowledge that failure will be like an annoying neighbor that never quite leaves you alone. But when you get to know them, you learn that they truly bless your life. So what musical failure has blessed your life and um, taught you lessons that you that have become a valuable part of your musical journey? Well, I've had a lot of musical failures. And um, one of them I can think of, I was 21 years old and I was conducting um, Ochre Mountain Symphony. And I was conducting repertoire that was really... I wasn't experienced enough to conduct. Mm -hmm. And I learned one, how hard that was Two, that I needed to um, get better at what I was doing before I was able to do that. And I think I learned valuable lessons about how to make orchestra not hate you. (laughs) And um, there were other times where it was the first time doing um, an orchestra recording and learned what things like, Oh, you mean if I do this, that will be detrimental. Okay. If I do that, that will be happy. And so I kind of like to think, and I do have some evidence for this as well, but that orchestras like contracted orchestras enjoy at least for one reason, playing on orchestra sessions that I do, because based on my failures in the past, I um, will respect their time better than no one else. They, they do mm-hmm. 50 minutes on 10 minutes off. And I'll let them out exactly on time or a minute early. Um, and I am mindful of that because I want them to know that if anyone ever comes in place for me, that I will never um, insult their time. And so things like that, that have um, really shaped who I am, that I really want to be, um, have the reputation for being kind, for being friendly and for being, and that they know that they can trust when I tell them that they are always be let 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 out on time or early how long does it when you're how does how long does a recording session usually take um i tell myself that i can with an orchestra in one hour we can do two and a half songs okay so if we do um so we might do four hours um for nine to twelve tracks um depending on the length of the track um if they're all really short then we can do more but um generally a three and a half minute track i tell myself we can get through two and a half songs in one hour um so generally i don't ever call an orchestra for a session shorter than two hours there's a two hour minimum because you want them to be there happily you don't want them to be like resenting the, the call to mm-hmm. to come um and i've never done one longer than eight hours mm. nine hours with a lunch break how long do the musicians have like how many days do the musicians have before the recording session to practice? They don't practice. They, they don't. Get the, they get the music on their stand on the day of, and then they do it. So say the session starts at nine in the morning, um, exactly at nine o'clock, um, I'll close the doors and the concert master will stand up and play an A and get the orchestra tuned. I'll say, um, well, I might say, all right, while they're um, just getting sound levels, I want you guys to play just bars 13 through 21. Ready, and, and they'll just start playing it. And usually it's 100% perfect. 
I'll use that time to say like, um, now just so you know, I want this part to sound a little more aggressive. I want this part to sound a little bit more stretchy and whatever. Um, but this is a very good interpretation. Um, oh, it sounds like they're ready for us. All right, here's bar one, two, three, four. We start. And um, then we'll usually do that piece three times so that we can get, so that we can layer that that piece on top of itself. So I might have 15 string players in there, but if we layer it three times, it'll be kind of like we had 45 in theory because we'll kind of layer those on top of each other. And then we're like, all right, next song. And same process. And then if there's, and I tell my, I tell the musicians, I said, if you do, if you play a wrong note, um, if I hear it, I'll stop you. But if I don't hear it, keep on going. And then use your discretion. If you feel like you've ruined it and I didn't notice, then let me know. But um, otherwise, I'll keep the momentum of the session going. And for the most part, I'll stop you if we need to stop. And then we get to a tricky part. And we also have this like, there's a click track. And the best way to describe it is like a dynamic metronome, which is that here at my desk, here in my studio, before I go into the recording session, I can create a metronome track that actually speeds up and slows down as necessary for the ebb and flow of the piece. Mm. And then the musicians will actually hear that metronome in their headphones while we're doing the recording oh. session. And that's how we're able to do almost identical recordings that can like stack on top of each other to make them sound a little bigger. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we'll have that going in their heads and we get to a tricky spot where there's like a, maybe they have to do like a 16th note run all the way up to the top of the staff. And at the same time, the click track is doing a retardando. And usually when that happens, there will be a timing mistake. And yeah. so I'll stop it. I'll say, Mike, will you play um, these bars just on the click so we can hear it? So then he'll play it. And so they can watch their music go by and hear the retardando. And then they say like, okay, got it. So then we start two bars back and we do it and they execute it perfectly. And then we just keep on going on. So there's, that's the, like the workflow for when we run into mistakes, we'll stop. We'll back two measures up before the mistake and then just keep on going. But largely um, the only time we need to stop them is for an occasional mistake or maybe there's a part, well, this is actually interesting. The orchestra, because they're they're paid freelance musicians, in general, they don't want to stick out. So rather than play really, really soft or really, really loud, they'll start kind of like in a medium area in a place mm. where like they won't get in trouble. Because if they come out guns a-blazing and just forte and they're the only ones who do that, they don't want to look bad and be like, oh, I don't think I'll call that person back. Now, mm. really, I'm not going to be... I'm not going to, their career is not really in jeopardy from me in that moment. Um, but nobody wants to stick out. So they'll kind of start in like a medium dynamics. And so sometimes I'll stop them and be like, all right, guys, I really need passion here. And they'll be like, okay, and they'll do it. But sometimes unless I explicitly ask for it, or it's explicitly written in the thing, in the music, they will tend to be a little bit conservative. And so sometimes even before the music starts, I'll just give them a couple notes. Like, hey guys, in bar 50, I really want it loud. And in bar 49, I want that as soft as you can be. And when you get to this section, I know it's already written as accented, but I want it to sound so aggressive. I'll just say that right beforehand. And then that's one way that we can really get the character of the music going. 
That's so interesting to me that that there's no practice beforehand because personally, that's really intimidating. Because <laughs> as a pianist, I'm not a perfect pianist, and so I make mistakes even when I've been practicing for a while. So um, that's a that's pretty impressive, and I'm sure that you have a list of people you can go to who you know will make less mistakes and play exactly how it's written and all that stuff. Yeah. So the orchestra freelance community that we have here, I mean, they do this on a regular basis um, for video game music, for film music, for um, like I used them one time because we had a, a temple rededication here in Utah mm-hmm. and I wrote the score for the, um, the youth celebration. Mm-hmm. So that kind of stuff, um, jingles, all sorts of stuff they're used for. So they're really, they're really used to that. And it's really amazing to see the really high quality and high caliber musicians that do this because yeah, they wouldn't be called back if like, if the session was suffering because of that one person. (laughs) And if one person was like making all the mistakes and those people, that person wouldn't be called back. In fact, they wouldn't even have been called in the first place, but it's really, really high. And that's another thing is that I want to always show them how much I respect that amount of talent and dedication that they have because in an orchestral setting, who has all the power? The conductor. Mm-hmm. And there's a saying in orchestras that all conductors are mean. <laughs> and the reason why that's a saying is because 99% of the time it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have taken that to heart, even though I've never been accused of being a rude conductor. Um, um, I'm, maybe I should get into people's private conversation here to hear that. But um, I, that is so important to me that even though I'm the one with the baton, I recognize that I'm not the one making the sounds and that I have so much respect for, I mean, if you think about it, and let's, let's just put ourselves in a concert scenario, 60 musicians in front of me, each of them with 30 years of experience. So how many thousands of years of experience are standing before me? And my experience with the baton 20 years. Okay. So I've got 300 years of experience on the stage and 20 years of experience. And I have the power, but I have to respect so much what's in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I guess with like for people, I guess, this lesson, it's interesting because we could with, with music, there's always a lesson for life. Right. And I was thinking when you were talking about that, like, well, how can I be better, a better pianist to the point where you know, if I had to sit, I have had those experiences at church where I had to sit down and play something that I've never seen before for a performance. And, um, and I did okay, but I was thinking about like, well, maybe I need to be better about learning how to sight read so that I can, you know, prove that, improve that skill so I can be called upon more often with confidence. And that could probably be said for anything in life. If you you want to be good at it you have to practice (laughs) yes so at it so it's and you have to pinpoint what you need to work on right like if i want to be better at sight reading well i'm gonna have to start sight reading things i've never seen before all the time and if i want to be better at praying well i should probably practice praying more often yes and one of those cool things that just comes to mind about like when you want to practice sight reading, one of the best ways in my experience is to look at the piece of music and hear it as best you can. It doesn't have to be 100% accurate at first. Eventually it could be, I think, um, with the right um, with the right ear training skills. But you look at that piece of music and you imagine not only 
how the notes sound, but how the rests sound, how mm. the tempo sounds. Yeah. How do I want it to breathe? Even before I've even touched the look at it. And then I'm not going to sight read it. I'm going to play what I heard in my head. <laughs> so because don't we always play things better when we've heard them before? Yeah. That's just, that's a trick that I do with conducting too, is that if I hold my baton out and I strike the downbeat and what comes out of the orchestra surprises me, then I am in no position to be leading them. Yeah. But if I can hear how I want it to sound in my head before I even raise the baton, and then I'm communicating to play it like this, that then I am leading them. But yeah. if I do it the other way, then I'm following them. And then it's like, I'm doing them no good. It's like that note that I was telling you earlier. It's like, well, is this note helping, hurting, or is it indifferent? And in that case, I'd be, I'd be the thing that was hurting them. <laughs> I, I can see that because I, as, again, as a pianist, I've played for choirs and stuff at church. And I've been in a position where I have played where there has not been a conductor. And, and I had to lead these people in their singing. And so you, you know, pay attention to when they're supposed to breathe or you pay attention to when they're supposed to come in and you just kind of try and give them gentle hints mm-hmm. as a pianist to, to, help them know when to do that and so i love that and and taking what i tell my students note walks right looking through the entire song and and notating what you see before you even play it will help you play through something mm-hmm. better than if you hadn't before i personally i can't look at a piece of music and hear it in my head so that doesn't work for me but i can read through music and see Even if what's you can't ahead. hear it, you can at least know the rhythms. Yeah. You can at least do that. And that's a great place to start. Um, up that thing that you said about like leading the choir from like the piano bench with your like your gestures and leaning in and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I find a, also a very similar situation with as just a piano performer and the audience, like just the way you can lead the choir from the bench, you can also lead the audience from the bench. And I always tell my students, it's like, we don't want to dump the music on the audience, yeah. like a bucket of water. And with our gestures and our pauses and our tempos and our touch and our delicacy and our thoughtfulness, we can actually pull the audience with us rather than dump a performance on them. Yeah. And so I, I think that in any scenario that I think that's applicable to every aspect of music, whether you're writing, how do I write in such a way to bring them rather than show them? How do I perform in such a way that I bring them instead of show them? How do I conduct a way that I bring them instead of show them? And every single aspect, it makes it more musical. Yeah. In fact, yesterday when I was practicing this song that I did not consider to be such a beast when I picked it, but I was practicing it yesterday and my daughter was in here watching while I was playing and she's like, mom, why are you like leaning into the like, keys when you're playing this part and it was a part that had a mezzo piano so I wanted I wanted to make sure I was playing softer and so you know I you get smaller and you get you know you touch I don't know anyways so I can totally see how something like that would be helpful for the audience too um so how music as we've been talking about is not just something physical but it's also something spiritual in fact it has a spiritualness before physical right like uh like everything on the earth and so we have to prepare spiritually for music just as much as 
physically and we want my my biggest prayer when i when i perform is that people feel the spirit right that's that's the best the holy ghost is the best thing to is the best way for somebody to feel the to change to feel something to to do what we want to do when we're musicians which is to move people right and so what is something you do to prepare yourself spiritually to perform and to conduct and to teach so honestly i view the music itself as an act of worship and i don't feel any more connected spiritually than when i am in the act of performing and playing the music even during practice Mm -hmm. and i take that time to actually make that my act of worship and um and so honestly that's how it feels to me yeah i agree i agree and you could totally change the way a song feels or how you're feeling while you're performing by like reconnecting to the spirit as you're performing and making sure that's an intentional intentional part of playing yeah and of course the scripture like the the song of the heart is a prayer unto me is mm-hmm. what comes to mind and that there's there's no other place or way that i felt more connected absolutely i agree all right our time is quickly coming to an end so at the end of every episode and of every interview, I ask the same two questions. The first question is, uh, what experience from Jesus's life shows you that he was a guardian of music? Well, I think if you read the Psalms of David, mm-hmm. then you quickly understand that biblically speaking, music has always been very an intricate part of worship. Mm-hmm. and not just um and not just um solely to 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 Judaism and Christianity um but the the thing that comes to mind from Jesus's life would be that at the last supper the bible records that they sang hymns mm. and while we don't know what um hymns we um there are there are actually plenty of um scholars that would actually that actually do know what hymns were generally sung at the Passover. I don't have them on at the top of my mind right now, but they did have like I think the Hall the Hallel was one that is often done at the Passover traditionally. So mm-hmm. that Jesus and his disciples probably sang the Hallel, which is a form of praise to God in Hebrew, mm-hmm. and maybe other hymns. But I think that the scriptures and the life of Jesus can tell us that music has always been a central point of worship and i don't take that lightly personally mm-hmm. i sing out in the congregational singing i'll play the organ with the stops that make it sound like i'm trying to reach the heavens with the organ <laughs> um, i love it <laughs> um but i think that worship and music are one and the same yeah yeah and the angels sing at his birth you know, that's another another one I just barely thought of. So obviously it's a part of heaven if we have angels singing. So it feels heavenly to me. How huh? can, the words come to mind. How can I keep from singing? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Last question. If you could pick anyone, past or present, who you think 
is a guardian of music who would you pick and why and this could be anyone people often pick somebody from like the church <laughs> but it could be absolutely anyone um you know the composer john rudder mm-hmm. uh, he's an anglican composer um british composer um has written so much beautiful spiritual music even not being a spiritual person himself he has said that he has always been so moved by religion and people who sing religious music that he has made his whole career out of writing sacred music mm-hmm. that i don't think he can deny is touching people's lives so even not being an actual believer himself or maybe he is i can't say for sure but he does describe himself as not particularly religious um he's drawn to that music as well and has done a lot for it. i love that i've never heard of him so i'm gonna have to you'll have to send me some of his like links you'll know to some a few of of, you'll know a few of them you'll know a few probably well thank you shane it's well, been you. a pleasure to talk about music i don't have enough friends out here that are musical so i don't get to geek out like this very often so i appreciate i appreciate your time and pleasure is mine and your willingness to talk to me about something that's so special to both of us so absolutely thank you all righty i hope you have a good day and we'll see you later (laughs) thank you for listening to this episode of the guardians of virtue podcast please don't forget to give us a follow and if you have time please leave a review peace out dudes